Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Mary Fraser, author of the book Policing the Home Front, 1914 to 1918, The Control of the British Population at War. Mary, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Right. Well, um, I'm a social historian. Um, I've looked at um, the history of nursing um, and the work of the nurse in, in the historical context. And for the last 10 years, I've been looking at the work of the police in a historical context, um, which I found most enjoyable. Um, I have had an academic career um, and I still do uh, short courses, particularly on this aspect of uh, the work of the police um, at my local university, Glasgow University. Um, And I enjoy working almost on a daily basis on developing this area. What led you to focus specifically on the role of the police in the First World War, as opposed to, say, some other aspect of of the history of the police? Right. Well, because this was my first attempt at looking at the police, uh, police work, I thought it would be better to confine it to something like period in time. Um, and it seemed to me, because at the time it was the centenary of the First World War, that it would be a good idea to start with that. Um, so it was really serendipity why I chose that. But I needed this confined period of time to make it manageable. Um, and, you know, I found that um, work at that time was particularly challenging for the police. And therefore, I found it a fascinating aspect because a lot of the work that the police did was not what you might expect them to do. They had a whole load of, of other uh, roles put on them, which were far from what one might consider policing. Yeah, it's one of the things I found so fascinating about reading your book was just discovering their, the role that they played, not just in terms of policing British society, their, you know, sort of this traditional function that they serve. But as you explain, they were given all these additional duties at a time which, as you elaborate, the force is really coming under enormous strain. Indeed, yes. Yes, because, you know, the police by definition were young, fit men. And so therefore, many of them were conscripted into the into the army or navy. And you see many police forces losing, um, well, thousands. I mean, the Metropolitan Police in the first day that war was declared lost over a thousand men. Hmm. Um, so, you know, this was a huge amount to lose at one stroke. And then um, because volunteering in the early days was thought to be glamorous, a lot of men left um, voluntarily uh, for the war effort. And it was only um, in about the next six months that they realized what the war was about. And um, volunteering stopped uh, in quite such large numbers. 
But by that time, I mean, out of Glasgow police, for example, with a, an establishment of, of um, 2,000, they'd lost 700. So this was a huge amount, but they were they were given permission to recruit special constables. But the special constables were um, part time. They mainly had their own businesses to run. So they usually worked no more than, say, four or eight hours a week. So they were sort of some some of the policemen less favorably called them just filling gaps rather than actually doing, you know, regular police work like someone employed only in the police service would do. Um, but they did make up the numbers and they were put on beat on the streets so that, you know, they were visible to the population. What you just described gets to a part about, about your book that I really appreciated, which is that you capture the attitude of the police themselves. I, I think about how many uh, histories of the state and of uh, policing so often treat the police as sort of this body of limbs, shall we say, where they go out and do things and don't have any sort of views of their own. <laughs> and yet you go, you work uh, quite diligently to try to capture their voices. How did you do that? Well, I found it interesting looking at their police journal. Now, this was the main journal that the policeman on the beat read at that time. And it was widely circulated. Um, and it started in um, the 1890s by a man who wanted to improve the lot of the police. You know, he wanted to improve their education. He wanted it to be policing to be seen as a profession um, and to give them um, self-respect. Um, and uh, it certainly did that. And the widely read journal allowed the police to have a voice. And so this is why this book is rather different. Some of the other police books I've read have been, as you say, um, you know, who the police were, you know, their ages, their backgrounds, where they were born, this sort of thing. Other police histories have been the history of the institution, you know, whether they were um, within local authorities and how that developed over time. But this book does very much look at the voice of the policeman on the beat and shows his worries and his frustrations and his um, struggles to actually do the job and to have a voice to be able to speak about his concerns and get answers that he trusts. And that was a part of your that, that was I was really impressed by how much of your book you devoted to that because it really helped, I thought, to explain what life was like for the policemen during the war. And you already have mentioned one aspect of this, which was how they, many of them went off and served and how they had to work through a lot of these special constables. Mm. Also, I was wondering if you could, was that the only group of people that they turned to in, in these extraordinary circumstances to try to fill the ranks and continue to perform their various roles? Or were there other groups in society who had been Sorry. underutilized, who, who, who they hadn't turned to until now? Ah, oh, right. Do you mean to actually recruit into the police force? Yes. Right. Well, certainly the tribunals, but this wasn't set up till 1916, 19, early 1917. The tribunals, if they gave exemptions to men um, from going to war, uh, they would say on condition that you join the special constables. Mm -hmm. um, there were also uncharitably um, men who enlisted in the police service because they didn't want to go to war. 
and they were considered um, shirkers and slackers and um, they were said to be um, temporary policemen and sometimes boasted to the others that they were only there until the war ended and of course they were hated by the other policemen because they were felt not to really have the um, you know the full ethos of the service uh, you know at their um, at their command um, so generally there were and and the women police were recruited and they were very keen to um, f- perform police duties but they were never really part of the police force they were always separate from the police force and really only seen to be dealing with women and children um, they weren't given authority to arrest anybody um, and their work was really either patrolling the streets or working with uh, women and children in the homes. And yet, as you explain, that was actually a much larger role than it had previously been because you have women uh, more prominently in workforce now. Women are going out and socializing more. They're going to pubs more. Mm. So there was, as you explained, I thought this was really fascinating how, you know, in effect that that creates a need for women police that hadn't been perceived as necessary until then. And how and, and how yes. you, they begin, you begin to see more of them going from just those roles as matrons taking care of the women who were brought into the stations and jailed to where they're actually now playing a role in the enforcement of law. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And they were either uh, mainly involved with going to the homes when children were seen to be committing crimes and, you know, advising the parents and um, helping the children. Um, But also one of their main roles was in trying to um, uh, undermine the role of sexual immorality. And this was a huge problem. I mean, this was a moral panic in the First World War um, with the overseas troops coming and actually living in Britain, particularly the Canadian troops, you know, 40,000 of them came over and lived in Folkestone and went across to France to fight and then came back for their vacations. Um, But, you know, the women police were seen to be patrolling the streets to um, in London to be um, uh, going to the public parks and seeing that immorality wasn't occurring. And the dominions were really worried about the fear of the spread of venereal disease, and that was really their main concern. Um, they were worried that at the, uh, on uh, demobilization at the end of the war, the disease was going to be carried back to their nations and infect their populations for as long as they could um, see, because there was no cure at that time. Mm. So it was a real worry for the dominions, and particularly Robert Borden, Um, The Prime Minister of Canada was absolutely outraged by the fact that, you know, the Canadian soldiers could well go home with this with this sort of disease. So, you know, the police were there, particularly the women police, trying to um, put surveillance on the women. It was usually the women that were thought to be spreading the disease rather than it being, you know, by both genders, um, trying to prevent the women from actually having, you know, um, undertaking solicitation and, um, you know, uh, uh, preventing them from um, hanging on to the men when they saw them in the streets because some of the men were complaining to their prime ministers at home that they actually couldn't shake the women off. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was it was seen that the women police were the only group that could really deal with this. I mean, this was not seen as a male policeman's role. Um, they felt completely unable to deal with it. Was the class origins of the police a factor in this? Because you, you describe in, in your first chapter how most of the police prior to the war came from the uh, working classes. And you explained that yes. the women that were recruited into the police forces came from the middle classes. Yes, absolutely. Because of the moral values that uh, were associated, they were seen as the most appropriate people. Hmm. And they were really keen to do the work. They really wanted to, and they continued to persist with their um, requests to be involved in various areas. I thought the notion of the police as uh, symbols of respectability was really fascinating. And you talk about in this context of the police as these moral enforcers, but you also talk about it in a very different context, which I thought was even more interesting, which was this notion of living costs, how you explained that the one of the right. expectations of the wives of police officers was that they could not go out and work. It was, it was a notion of respectability. Mm. And mm. you explained how that came under mm. increasing strain as the war went on and you had this problem with wartime mm. inflation. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Because the increasing price of food, it was mainly the inflation in food prices um, and the increasing inflation in food prices. I mean, food prices were, I think, in 1918, about 108% compared with um, 1914 when the war started. And then there were the shortages and um, of various items and the whole of the diet changed. But whereas women who weren't um, associated with the police force were able to go and work in munitions factories and things like that to um, bring in finance to the family. The uh, women of the police officers weren't allowed to do that um, because they were seen to be, you know, apart from the community um, and support their husband's role. Um, and there was certainly one woman that I came across who insisted on continuing with her role in teaching and her husband never did get promotion. Um, because it was thought that, you know, she shouldn't be doing this. She should be devoting her time to her husband and family, the police family. And in fact, the journal that I took this material from um, very much supported the women. They gave them a forum for discussion. Uh, the wives' column was very prominent uh, in issuing, uh, you know, advice to women and providing even recipes when food became short um, of, of how to feed the family. Did uh, women have any sort of alternative or a way of bringing in income or did they have a way of pushing back against the inflation by pressuring politicians to increase policemen's salaries? They did. And they wrote letters frequently to the press, to the authorities, to the police authorities, um, saying that particularly if they had five children, and in fact, the police really were not keen on these large families because they realized that the police pay was going to be difficult to support five children. Um, so they would prefer smaller families. However, um, the women constantly um, were asked through the journal to uh, put down the costs of what they were spending on a weekly basis. And um, the police themselves or the wives then um, approached the police authority and said, look, you know, we, we simply can't manage on this amount of money. 
we are, you know, having to uh, forego meat rations and meat rations were seen in those times as actually giving the strength to the individual, the muscle strength. So without meat, you know, you'd have less strength and that would affect the policeman's work on the beat um, as well as the woman having to go without so that she could give her husband the meat ration for the week. Um, so times were really difficult and eventually um, as it got to 1918, the food restrictions got so bad that there were recipes printed um, which um, were using cattle feed, mangles, um, to uh, feed the family mm. because of the lack of alternatives. You also have uh, another, you describe another way in which the families addressed this. And this was an aspect of this other role that policemen were called upon to serve. And it's something that I had never heard about until I read your book, which was how they were called upon as the war went on to go and work on farms, not as police officers, but as laborers. <laughs> it just struck me as this as, as yes. this way that uh, officials thought of policemen as basically this exploitable workforce that they could just you know ask to do whatever was necessary. Well, this is my current project, and I'm just developing this. And yes, it is an amazing area. I was amazed when I saw this. Um, and it's because of their backgrounds. I mean, a third of the Glasgow police force that remained at home um, had agricultural backgrounds. And so you see about 154 of them were previous farm laborers. Uh, seven of them were previous plowmen um, and all sorts of agricultural roles. So in fact, they were absolutely ideal to go back to the land. And in the crisis of sudden food shortages at the beginning of 1917, every avenue was explored. Um, to get men to go and work on the land. And of course, they were mainly at that time, they would have used um, manual plows with horses. So of course, you needed a big beefy man um, to actually be able to hold the, the blades of the plow in the ground and to have the knowledge to direct the horses to make any impact on the land. Mm. And of course, at this time, it was March. So the land was damp. And it would have been really heavy to turn. So the policeman's physique and his knowledge of farming um, would have been absolutely ideal. And yes, there were eight locations in Scotland and eight locations in England uh, that released policemen. So in Scotland, there were about 230 policemen released and about the same number in England to plough the fields. And they were released on a temporary basis, you know, for about six weeks. But the crisis was there. And the thing was that if the land wasn't ploughed before the end of April, this was giving a six-week gap to plough the land. If it wasn't ploughed and planted before the end of April, then there were going to be no crops at the end of, uh, in, in August in the harvest. So this was why it was so crucial for them to actually be mobilised and go back to the, to the land. Now, was it were they asked to do this, or was were they basically required to do it? Were they simply ordered it, or did they have any sort of uh, choice in the matter? No, they were asked, and the chief constable was asked by the by the corporation um, to identify those individuals that might want to volunteer, and he invited them to volunteer, and they did hmm. um, in in large numbers, um, and I. Think from what I'm trying, what I'm seeing now, I think that it was possibly one more way that it would be attractive to them was that it would um, be more important than working <laughs> in the police force to avoid being conscripted into the army, mm. because food 
production was a top priority at that point, more important than working in the police force. It really does underscore how vital the police were to the British state during the First World War. And I'm thinking here about how this is on top of all these other expanded duties that they've been given. The, one of the w- first ones that you address is this question of separation allowances. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain uh, what these separation allowances were and what was the role of the police in terms right. of uh, in, in terms of their distribution to families. Right. Well, the separation allowance was the first big controversy of the war. And it was announced by the Asquith government uh, in a week after war commenced. And the Liberal government, of which Asquith was the head at that time, um, had the um, notion of volunteering being important. They didn't want to insist that men went to war. So conscription was far from their agenda at that time. And in order to volunteer, to encourage men to volunteer. They said that they would look after their wives and families while the men were away fighting so that the men wouldn't worry about the woman being unable to feed the family or running up huge bills. So the amounts were set and they were quite low. They were only about the level of the a um, farm labourer. So they weren't extravagant by any means, but they were issued to every wife. But then there was a condition that it was provided the wife hadn't committed a crime or given any sort of false um, information. And that was where the problem started to arise because the controversy over women drinking and spending their money on drink and immoral living was one of the reasons that the police were brought in to be sure that the money was being spent in an appropriate manner. And so there was um, huge controversy when the government issued, this was from the Home Office, the government issued a notice to all chief constables asking them to put surveillance on all wives whose husbands had gone to war. (laughs) And of course, this created a huge controversy. Um, And it was brought about by Arthur Henderson, who was the leader of the Labour Party. And he continued to insist in government that in the House of Commons, that this was quite unreasonable and quite unfair and women didn't need this. And then, of course, the women's labor organizations got involved and insisted that, no, they were quite insulted by being um, accused of spending their money inappropriately. And how dare the government say that (laughs) they needed surrogate husbands in the police force um, to control their spending? But this was the nature of patriarchy at the time. It was considered that women couldn't manage on their own. That, that is something that really comes across um, well. So this went on. I was going to say this, this, this is something Sorry, that, yeah. that really comes across in your book, which is this notion of the police as surrogate patriarchy, which or, or as, as as surrogate fathers, uh, not just in terms of separation mm. allowances, but I was thinking in terms of how they dealt with the increased incidence of women consuming alcohol, youth crime, with all these men who were being uh, who were being uh, first recruited and then conscripted, going off to the front. Is this attitude that well, right. the, the bobbies will fill the void, and 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 that they will be the the male authority figure that's ensuring that uh, the patriarchy, the patriarchal model is maintained. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, they did. And, um, you know, despite the fact that the women protested, um, the they were often just swept aside. You know, even deputations of middle class women were just swept aside. Government really didn't pay any attention um, to their to their concerns. Um, so unless they were forced into it. Um, you know, the police did receive um, the names of, of the uh, women under who were in receipt of the, of the um, separation allowance, and they did routinely um, kept drunken disorderly returns. This was part of the police annual report. And so merely adding a column which said, this woman is in receipt of the separation allowance, meant that the whole system could be monitored on a national level. Because each police force, can, uh, you know, wrote a, an annual report, um, including those sorts of statistics. And questions were asked in Parliament about had any women lost their separation allowances? And yes, they had. Um, up until 1917, I think the number was over 2,000 had lost their separation allowances. So the police were very much determined and had really felt that the women should be um, sanctioned for uh, acting in a drunken, disorderly fashion if it was in public and if it involved their children being neglected. I was thinking about that as well when you were talking about the problem of alcohol abuse during the war, because you describe how these there was at the same time this policing of the consumption or the or acquisition or purchase of alcohol by women and how this mm. ended up pushing women into pubs. And so, in effect, it was. It seemed to be the, the message that came out of it was the it was that the uh, state didn't want these women to drink, and yet, uh, mm. and yet they they mm. they the, whenever they tried to restrict the activity in one respect, you, these women who were oftentimes uh, on their own, they were now working. Sometimes they're working in factories. They wanted a release, and and they mm. would simply find another means to find it, even, even though the state was frowning upon it as not womanly activity. Mm. Well, this was one of the the issues in the war that because the work for a workforce was needed um, in a whole load of different areas that had never been used to having women before, that the women were emancipated. You know, they did go into pubs and drink on their own, and this was seen as shocking. Um, by the middle classes, they did um, work away from home in the munitions factories. And particularly if they were young girls, they were seen to need supervision in the hostels. Um, and all these areas where women suddenly became involved in public, um, whereas before they'd been more in sort of in the private domain of the home. And this was what shocked the population and the police were brought in to try and control this. And the women police, as one example um, of trying to moralize with the women so that they continued to work, but they didn't have the opportunity um, to either neglect their homes and families if they were uh, married women with children or to be involved in, in sexual immorality if they were single girls. It was the problem with alcohol abuse confined just to women, though, or were they finding also were there additional problems with, say, drunken soldiers uh, out who were home on leave? Yes, 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 absolutely. Drunkenness was rife, and consumption, of course, were, rose with the increased prosperity of the nation because almost everybody was working, so they could afford spirits rather than beer, although the working class drink was beer. But yes, in order to confine the um, 
level of, of consumption, the hours of opening of the pubs were considerably constrained. And um, the Alcohol Control Board even took over the running of the pubs and the breweries in Carlisle around the Carlisle area. And if you go to Carlisle, you can still see notices on the building saying this was a state-owned pub. <laughs> um, and this was in an attempt to try and control the drinking behavior of the population, but also to try and set up things like works canteens in the munitions factories so that people had a chance to eat and not have to go hungry or bring their own sandwiches in, which often they didn't, during the working day. Mm. And this would prevent them from needing to use alcohol during the day, which they would bring in in a hip flask um, to try and counteract hunger. So it was positive as well as negative in the way in which drink was controlled. But the controller of the um, Central Control Board, the uh, executive of the Central Control Board, really um, relied on the police and encouraged the police to be active and involved in seeking out drunkenness um, and it prevented him from recruiting a huge uh, workforce himself, that he could rely on the police and encourage the police to do the work for the Central Control Board. Another uh, aspect of social morality that the police were heavily involved in was prostitution. You've already talked about it uh, in other contexts. I was wondering if you could focus upon it a bit more. How did prostitution change during the war and, and how did the police go about adapting or responding to these changes. Ah, oh, right. Yes. Well, prostitution was always a problem. And um, to start with, um, with khaki fever, which was seen as at the outset of war with the young girls and, and probably young married women as well, congregating around the military camps, which were set up in large uh, conurbations in different places. Um, in the hope of, uh, you know, uh, either seeing or, or uh, cornering uh, a man in khaki, which was seen as immensely attractive. And then the government felt that it really should have some sort of restriction on this. So part of the Defence of the Realm Act was to move the women on. They weren't allowed to congregate around the camps. But what this did when um, the prostitutes were, were sent elsewhere um, and also the houses of immorality were closed, um, that they merely went a short distance away and the troops tended to follow them uh, on their bicycles. Um, so, you know, it was very difficult to control immorality in, in the first instance. But increasing um, roles that constrained uh, the prostitutes in particular uh, meant that it was more the amateur girls who were not prostitutes and weren't necessarily receiving money uh, for sexual uh, gratification or sexual favours. Um, they were the ones who were more of a problem to the police because the, uh, the prostitutes had already been convicted. So the police knew who they were and could, you know, follow them and could, um, you know, lock them up if necessary or um, warn them. Um, but the amateur girls, they didn't really know who was um, uh, involved in sexual activity and who wasn't. And in the private domain of, of sexual activity, the police said they had to observe somebody for a long time if they were soliciting to be sure that they could bring a conviction. 
And of course, if they brought a conviction and it was a wrong conviction, the police was were said to be, um, you know, ruffians, uniformed ruffians, um, exploiting women and and um, uh, giving them an unnecessary uh, sentence or an unnecessary court appearance. Um, And in the meantime, if the women were accused, they were taken to um, the the doctors who physically examined them to find out whether they had had sexual intercourse. Um, So this was, again, infringement of of personal liberty um, if they were found to be innocent. So this made a huge problem for the police because they were seen to really want to protect their image and not be accused of being uniformed ruffians, which was spread throughout the press. The police commit another blunder sort of sort of uh, press reports. Well, was there a class dimension to this as well, where the amateur girls tended to be not quite working class, they tended to be higher up, and so therefore there was this notion of social respectability that the people who were accused might be very determined to defend? Yes, yes, some of them were. I mean, I think they were from all classes. Some were from the working classes, some were from um, the more, you know, the more middle classes. Um, It seemed to be absolutely rife in the war. And it was put down again to lack of male control, um, to um, the anxiety of the war, creating these sorts of tensions within the women. And the same for youth crime. You know, it was considered that the excitement of the war would create increased immorality and increased law-breaking. I was thinking that especially comes out when you're talking about the issue of youth crime, which, as you explained, Mm -hmm. was this serious concern for the police during the war. How did they respond to it, especially given the absence of so many fathers? Right. You mean the police? How did the police respond to it? Yes. Did they I mean, obviously, they're they're dealing with this increase in it. Do they try to assume more of the parental role, or do they simply try to put yes. more pressure upon the families yes. to step up and do more on their end? Well, they did try to um, impose middle class moral values on the families, because if the child was taken to court. Um, they would then want background information on the family. And this was where the women police came in, that they went into the family circumstances. um, They'd see how the family lived. They'd probably assess their income level. um, They'd see how many other children they had, what sort of neighborhood they lived in. So they create a complete profile of the family. But also they would follow this up later on um, to be sure that the message got across of how moral value were to be built up. Like, for example, instead of having the uh, youth having temporary jobs which were of little value, trying to get them permanent jobs which actually built um, to a scene where they would eventually get married and be breadwinners for the family. Um, so they would have these middle class values rather than, you know, being um, what people were worried about is the degradation of the nation that you had large numbers of youth who actually had very little, very few skills and were never going to be able to be earning enough to keep a family. I thought this concern about degradation was especially stark when you're talking about this question of regulating the cinemas. Because, and here was something that Mm. you're talking about, a a relatively new medium, one that is, is, is really coming into its own and yet you have that discussion of morality. What was the primary concern about the cinemas? 
And what role were the police playing in terms of addressing it? Mm. Well, the, the cinemas at that time had two ways of being controlled, what was shown in the cinema and also the building itself. I mean, the, the laws first came in about the cinema to protect them from fire because of the celluloid films going, you know, catching fire. So that was the first concern. And that was before the war broke out. But once the war broke out, there was worry about the content of the films being shown, whether it was either immoral or whether it would increase um Give give the youth ideas of ways of committing crime, house breaking, shop breaking, that sort of thing. Um, and the local authorities had responsibility for giving licenses um, to the films, but there was no central. Uh, control of this. And so if one local authority banned one film and the other local authority next door didn't, the people merely travelled to the next local authority if they wanted to see the film um, without any sort of regulation. And what the police did were was to, again, have some sort of sense of moral values of what was a suitable film, particularly for children and adolescents to see. Um, and when it came to um, the commission on the cinema, uh, the police were brought in to give their views on two or three films which were said to be controversial. And where they said that the law wasn't sufficient to allow them to ban the films, they actually said that they wouldn't want their own daughters going to see it. Um, so it showed you the difference and the ways in which the laws were really insufficient to be able to cope with what was largely felt to be immoral. Also, the women police would visit visit cinemas from time to time to be sure that um, at that time, before the commission report uh, was, was published, the cinema lighting was very low and there was worry that the children and the adolescents were being molested in the, in the auditoriums. Um, and the police, women police went in to, you know, have some sort of view on whether this was happening and to what extent. Um, but... Uh, you know, they, they weren't present in, in the auditoriums the whole time. So the potential was that it could occur. Um, and again, it was said to be lack of parental control that, you know, the mothers didn't go to the cinemas with the children. They were allowed to go on their own. Um, and who knows what they were going to see. Was, was the worry. One of the uh, interesting um, outcomes of the commission on, on the cinema was that lighting in the auditoriums was increased. So you now got the dim lights in the auditoriums so that the chances of people being molested was less likely. Um, and I found that quite interesting. I'd never realized that it wouldn't have been there all along. Um, so, yes, this was um, this was the story. but the cinema had increased in such a dramatic to such a dramatic extent and provided cheap entertainment for the masses this was the problem and the middle classes felt because it had expanded at such a rapid rate and because it was so cheap that everybody could go and see it and the middle classes were worried about how it was going to influence uh, working class attitudes and they felt out of control. I mean, this was really the basis of it. So, so what you described in this book basically is how the police are playing these two roles. One, they're, they're, they're serving as these exemplars of morality and patriarchal stability. And they're also playing this role as enforcers of those things. And yet you have near the end of the mm. war, this, this fascinating moment 
where the police go out on strike, which is sort of the, this this tool yes. of, of of working class radicalism. How uh, do the what yes. was it that leads to this point where you have thousands of police officers going on strike while the war is still going on? What were the concerns, and and how mm. uh, were they addressed? Well, they must have been absolutely desperate because they could see, they knew that their role was important. And it was only the Metropolitan Police that went out on strike, but there were thousands of them, you know, based all over London in different police stations. And it wasn't until they didn't turn up for work that the superintendents and people in the police stations realized that there was anything wrong. And you saw the telegrams going from one police station to another. Our policemen haven't turned up of yours. Well, no, ours haven't either. And they marched down Whitehall to um, uh, 10 Downing Street and were met there by Lloyd George. The issue was that they had been poorly paid for months, if not years. And because of the increasing food prices, they were really, um, some of them were said to be paying paid no more than slips of girls or van boys. And they felt completely demoralized by it all. And were just, you know, the final straw had come when they weren't prepared to put up with it any longer. And continuing questions in the House of Commons said, oh, yes, we're looking at it. We're, we're investigating it. We're, there will be a rise soon. But nothing ever happened. And when the police, um, the, the uh, strikers arrived at Downing Street, they were met by Lloyd George, the prime minister, who immediately gave them a pay rise. Because, you know, who else was going to be responsible for keeping law and order and, and keeping the public safe? Mm. But unfortunately, what this did, he said, well, Lloyd George said, well, um, I've been telling um, the, the chief constable, the, the commissioner of police for, for ages that the police should have a rise and he hasn't passed it on. Well, of course, this made the commissioner of police role untenable. Um, I mean, he'd been in post for at least since the beginning of the war. I'm not quite sure of hand when he first took up post, but it was throughout the war. And he found his post was untenable, and so he had to resign, which was an absolute tragedy. But, you know, the police did get their, their pay rise. Um, and all was, you know, they were back at work within a couple of days. But it was very dramatic. We've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? What I'm working on now? Yes. Did you say? Yes. yes. Well, I'm working on this area of police as plowmen. <laughs> <laughs> and that, it is absolutely fascinating. Is I'm that loving a, it. Is that an article well, or, or a book you're looking at? Well, I'm writing another book eventually. I've got a, a, a small grant from the Police History Society to do this. And what I'm looking at was what actually propelled each local authority to release their policemen. Because some did and some didn't. And what I want to know is why did those that release their policemen actually do so? And I've come across um, things like the potato shortage in Glasgow actually led to a riot in the main square. Um, and the, poli the, um, the corporation um, wouldn't allow the women's deputation to go in and put their case. And the provost was heard to say that the women would be better off going home and looking after their babies rather than demonstrating. So the women were utterly furious. 
Um, and of course, this occupied huge column inches in the in the newspapers. So to try and mitigate this, um, I think it was probably because of this, um, the provost um, agreed to release the policemen so that the potato shortage um, at least would, you know, the policemen were seen to be seen to be trying to provide food for the whole of the population, not just the working classes. But when you think that the working classes in those days were relying, their main diet was bread and potatoes and pea, um, you know, take away potatoes and, you know, there were no potatoes. Um, they were really in fear of starvation. So this was an absolute crisis at this point. And, you know, it came up against um, the working classes accusing the provost of being um, a ship owner. And uh, the inquiries that were taking place at the time about um, uh, labor unrest actually showed the, the difference between the working classes and the upper classes who were said to be profiteering from the war. And of course, this infuriated the working classes who felt that their cases were not being heard. So that's the story, I think, behind Glasgow. And in other places, there are other stories about why they released their policemen. But it's a fascinating area. It does sound fascinating. I, I hope that when that book comes out, we can have you back on the New Books Network to uh, discuss it. <laughs> Thanks. I'd love to. Okay. Fraser, <laughs> thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. It's been a delight. Thank you very much. <laughs>